I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, the stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, November 4th, 2013. Just got off the line with Joseph Atwill of the Covert Messiah. We'll be playing that conversation for you shortly. In fact, it'll take the whole program. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Now, one of the things that we do here at Fighting for the Faith is we engage in apologetic endeavors. Now... I am not Cy Ten Bruggen, Kate, although I have to tell you that as an apologist, I tend toward the uh, uh, the presuppositional side, although I find that evidences have their role. And I believe the right use of evidence is to debunk claims that come up that basically try to deny the existence, historicity of Jesus Christ so that I can then preach the gospel. Because the reason why people are unbelievers isn't because you haven't convinced them to become a believer. No, the reason why they're unbelievers is because they're born dead in trespasses and sins, and according to Romans, they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. So the idea is that when somebody puts forward an argument as to why they don't believe in Jesus— the apologetic task of basically shooting down their arguments, taking their arguments away from them, make, taking them captive and making them obedient to Christ, what that does is it neutralizes it so that you can then do the evangelistic task of preaching the gospel. What you're going to hear on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith is a little bit of it's a little bit of a hybrid. It's it's part debate, part conversation with a little bit of evangelism thrown in at the end with this understanding that uh, you know what I put forward in today's episode of Fighting for the Faith is a rigorous and difficult cross-examination of the claims being made by Joseph Atwill in his Caesar's Messiah book and in the uh, media event that took place in Great Britain called The Covert Messiah. We've covered that here at Fighting for the Faith. And so 
what I did is uh, back when I saw the press release come out, I contacted the organizers of the uh, Covert Messiah event and was able at that time to secure an interview with uh, Joseph Atwill, uh, one of the primary guys who was put forward, who put forward his ideas there at uh, the Covert Messiah. And we've played some of the claims here and, uh, you know, and why I think they're dangerous. But in talking with Joseph Atwill, I wanted to, first and foremost, for my audience, put forward a solid case for why we shouldn't believe his hypothesis and to give it a good, rigorous cross-examination so that you, the listener of Fighting for the Faith, can understand that Christianity and its claims are not claims that we should somehow think, oh, no, we can't face any scrutiny. If somebody questions us, what are we going to do? No, we have rock-solid historical evidence that backs up the claims made in the Gospels, and when you know when you're taking on these uh, these uh, false ideas that present themselves as evidences against Christianity, we have nothing to fear. But also to model for you that the apologetic task doesn't end with challenging someone's you know reasons that they throw up. Uh, for why they don't believe Christianity, but the apologetic task is to neutralize those arguments so that you can preach Christ and him crucified for our sins. So what you're going to listen to today is a very spirited at times conversation that I had with Joseph Atwell, and yet at at the end of it you'll see that uh, you know, even though it was spirited, it was still civil and it stayed on topic. And uh, in you know, I wanted to give you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, you know, basically a direct interaction with uh, the ideas and hypotheses and theories that he's put forward in his uh, Caesar's Messiah book and at the Covert Messiah event. So today's episode of Fighting for the Faith is something a little bit different, and I think that you will find it educational, and you will also see that uh, Christianity. And in the claims made by the eyewitnesses in the Gospels hold up very well, in fact, do very well uh, compared to the theories put forward by somebody like Joseph Atwill. But uh, you'll see that for yourself as the conversation unfolds. So without any further ado, here's the conversation that I had earlier today with uh, the author of Caesar's Messiah, the guy who held the uh, event in uh, uh, London a few weeks ago called Covert Messiah, uh, regarding his claims that Jesus was a fabrication of the Flavian emperors and uh, and all of the details that go with that, and you'll hear the cross-examination. Here we go. All right, on the line via Skype, I have uh, Joseph Atwill, author of Caesar's Messiah and the uh, gentleman who... Uh, helped put on the recent Covert Messiah event held out there in uh, Great Britain. And I've invited him on Fighting for the Faith to, number one, lay out for us uh, his hypothesis that uh, Jesus Christ himself was the invention of the Flavian emperors, uh, that, starting with Vespasian, going to uh, you know, uh, Titus and then Domitian, and that it was designed basically to quell uh, the uh, Jewish uprisings that uh, continue to plague the uh, the Roman Empire in the time basically from about 70 A.D. forward, but the uh, the Jews were a problem long before 70 A.D. Uh, Joseph Atwell, thanks for coming on Fighting for the Faith. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. All right, so I've read your book, I've watched the video. I wasn't able to uh, go to Great Britain to attend the. Uh, the event, although there would have been very little chance of me being able to afford that anyway. But um, I'm very familiar with your work and your hypothesis. And what I would like to do uh, on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith is give you an opportunity to lay out 
your argument. And then what I would like to do is, is have a civil exchange uh, and provide for you what I would hope to be a, a tough cross-examination of your thesis and your evidence. And uh, so I appreciate you taking the time to come on Fighting for the Faith. So tell us, uh, you know, what's your hypothesis? What's your evidence? What's your ideas that you're putting forward in uh, Caesar's Messiah and in the covert Messiah event? Well, I think uh, my thesis is, if nothing else, it's the simplest uh, sort of hypothesis or interpretation of the Gospels um, that has come around. Basically, uh, the character in the Gospel, Jesus Christ, is highly prefigured. In other words, uh, there are just uh, numerous uh, elements in his ministry and in his dialogue which are, in fact, uh, taken from the Old Testament and are a representation of a of a genre of literature, uh, a Hebrew um, genre of prefiguration, whereby you know one prophet will have events in his life that will essentially be parallel to events that will exist in. Uh, uh, in a life of a prophet that that comes after him, um, in Matthew, um, the uh, the character Jesus is uh, prefigured by Moses. Uh, I I would imagine most of your listeners are familiar with it, but just you know, in brief, um, in Matthew, Joseph goes to Egypt. Then you have the massacre of the boys, uh, two twenty. The statement there, dead who sought the young child's life. You journey back from Egypt to Israel. You have baptism where you pass through water. And then uh, Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days uh, where you have uh, the three episodes where he's tempted by bread and he tells the devil to not tempt God and finally to worship only God. Well, those events are all in fact taken from Exodus and Genesis in the Old Testament um, and then the author has used them to prefigure Jesus, in this case to show that Moses essentially was, um, you know, uh, connected to, that there is this divine pattern. And so in my thesis, um, when I was reading the Gospels, I was just interested in this character that Jesus envisions called the Son of Man that he looks forward to um, and who comes during the Jewish war. Uh, which will occur 40 years from Christ's ministry. Um, and so my theory is, is just that the authors continued the genre and set up um, prefiguration in the uh, ministry of Jesus to this character that Jesus is predicting in the future. So uh, if you look at uh, Jesus's ministry, the events in it and the sequence of events you can link up to um, an individual who claimed to be the Jewish Christ who came 40 years um, from the purported ministry of Jesus. And so what you have is just the Gospels are essentially a, a single genre of prefiguration. Um, some of it looks backwards to the Old Testament and some of it looks forward to the Jewish war. Okay. So so you've kind of picked up on the fact that uh, obviously Matthew is clearly engaging in some typological connection uh, between uh, Jesus and really kind of the whole nation of Israel, not just Moses, but uh, Israel as a whole. Um, yeah, I'm just to, don't mean to interrupt, but when, when Jesus has his baptism moment, he, you know, he's been typologically determined to at that point be representing the nation of Israel, and that's why the baptism parallel to the you know, the, the, the Israelites passing through the Red Sea 
is so vivid and, and understandable is that Jesus is essentially representing uh, the nation at that point. Okay. So how then does that typology then create the ergo moment in your mind that that means that Jesus is a fabrication? Well, there's no real ergo moment. I mean, um, people often ask, you know, like, what is the best evidence? And the problem is, is that prefiguration is a pattern. And it's sort of like a, a triangle that is made up of a of hundred dots. Um, if someone asks for a single example, you just give them a dot and they say, well, this is a dot, not a triangle. Um, basically, you, you would, um, uh, you know, if you read Caesar Messiah, what you'll see is, is that as you move through the ministry, there is this odd parallelism that just is relentless throughout the ministry. And, you know, the thing is, is that sequence is very important and not really understood by literary analysts and certainly by not by New Testament scholars. Um, you know, I've been having an exchange just recently where um, in, in um, you know, in the, in the New Testament uh, at the Last Supper, Jesus is set up as a human Passover lamb. Um, they have a system you know, whereby he's touched with hyssop and uh, it's stated that they don't break his bones because that's an instruction of the, you know, uh, the preparation of the Passover lamb sacrifice. And so it's pretty well understood that Jesus is, uh, you know, metaphorically operating as the the Passover sacrifice of the new covenant that mm -hmm. he represents. Right. Well, the thing is, is that um, Josephus in Wars of the Jews also has a, someone who is a, human Passover lamb. In this case, the, the child is actually eaten. Um, but it, it occurs um, at a certain point in, 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 the in the sequence of events. And um, so the, 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 the discussion has been about, well, you know, there's other ways to interpret um, Josephus's work. And you know, you could say, you know, different ways of understanding the typology. I take the position that, well, there are only two human Passover lambs in literature, so you can't really ignore the potential that you have um, typological mapping going on. But the way to demonstrate it, in other words, the way to actually know for sure that, um, you know, you, you have a, a deliberate typological mapping would be brought about by the sequence uh, in the same way as the, you know, the little Matthew uh, typology that I talked about in the sequence. If I'm going to state that, look, you know, Josephus's human Passover lamb is in fact mapped onto the typology in the gospels. I would have to be able to show that um, there is other uh, typology that would occur within a very small period of text. You know, in other words, I don't have unlimited sorts of uh, room to operate in. I have to, uh, within a very short period of text, um, generate the um, uh, the parallel. And then it, it just so happens that there is an extremely vivid parallel to the three crucified, one, one survives um, episode in um, in the gospel. And that occurs at exactly the right point in the sequence. And, and so what I have been arguing is that you can, you can make the case that Josephus's human Passover lamb, who's a son of Mary in the same location, it's Jerusalem, 
You can make the case that that's just a lightning strike, you know? I mean, if you've been following along in the sequence, this is where it should be in, in Josephus if you're going to have parallel mapping. But this guy that I'm, I'm kind of in discussion with is saying, well, yeah, I see your point. The kid is a human Passover lamb, but it's accidental. And so I said, okay, if you think it's accidental, that means that I can't go forward in the text, in a very tiny amount of text, and find some kind of vivid parallelism to, for example, the next big concept in the gospel, which is a crucifixion story. And he said, that's right, it would be impossible. And so I simply read him, you know, what is recorded by Josephus, and at that point he agreed that it just couldn't be circumstantial. Um, I'll, I'll just read the, um, if you don't mind, only, it's only about 100 words. No, please, go ahead. Okay. So after the human Passover lamb and Josephus, um, uh, it, it, you have uh, the in the Gospels, if you're going along in sequence, you have the crucifixion story. And so um, in Josephus, you have the, um, the, the, uh, the description that um, uh, I... I um, I saw many captives crucified and remembered three of them as my former acquaintance. I was very sorry at this in my mind. I went with tears in my eyes to Titus and told him of them. And so he immediately commanded them to be taken down and to have the greatest care taken of them in order for their recovery. Yet two of them died under the physician's hands while the third recovered. Well, I mean, recovery from crucifixion is a pretty unusual thing because you know, it's a death sentence. And uh, the idea of a group of three, the person who's taking him down is named Joseph. And then there's this odd parallelism between the last name, uh, Joseph Arimathea, and the, the guy who, in the, in the Josephus story, takes him down is Barmathias. So it's very similar, very close Greek lettering. So just overall, I mean, this would this story would be certainly the closest uh, parallel tale about uh, crucifixion to the story in the Gospels. And because it occurs after the son of Mary, um, you know, who's a Passover lamb, uh, I just don't see how it could be circumstance. It would be like arguing that you'd have two lightning strikes back to back. And you can argue it once, but they just don't happen in in sequence. Um, if, you, if you look through literature, what you'll find is uh, that um, there are all kinds of unusual parallels. There's a whole bunch of famous ones between Lincoln and Kennedy, for example. But they don't occur in sequence because it, you have the, the principle of probability, you know, like the chain of multiplication, that if something is unusual, um, unusual things just don't occur one after another after another. It's like DNA evidence. And so that's why you don't have a sequence of unusual parallels. And... So when I, when I um, you know, went through the Gospels and started seeing these odd connections between the war and uh, the ministry of Jesus, I eventually saw that what I was dealing with was a genre and that basically all of this is the prefiguration of the Son of Man character that uh, Jesus is envisioning. Okay, so you, basically in reading Josephus— in his uh, Jewish wars, you you seem to, th- to believe that there's some kind of typological sequence that seems to uh, be parallel to the New Testament, okay? Uh, to the ministry of Jesus. To the ministry of Jesus, okay? And and so because of that, what you believe to be a parallel sequencing of typological uh, 
ideas within the ministry of Jesus that somehow that what this really means is that Jesus didn't exist and that he was an invention of the Flavians? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, the the you know you, the the question of the existence of Jesus is is complicated because you get into technical definitions of history and fiction. I mean, uh, the guy who invented Donald Duck had a guy next door to him who had a duck named Donald. So you know you have a the this sort of like well, what is history that is embellished with fiction, or what is fiction that's embellished with history? The fact is, is that typology is virtually always a fictional genre. It's not a historical genre. And so when you separate from the character in the Gospels, Jesus Christ, the the typological events that are developed from the Old Testament, um, you know, you, you take away quite a bit of his activity and the, the, the status that he has as a historical being. Because, you know, like, for example, that the stuff that I was talking about earlier that comes in Matthew is is developed from some other source, that it's typology. Well, if you can start doing the same thing to the future of his ministry, then what you end up with is, um, you know, you start taking away just basically the, the, his, much of, his, of, of the life of the character. You've sort of established the genre that the authors are engaging in um, as not a historical genre. Um, but... You know, this is not to say that, um, you know, the parables could have been spoken by someone who that was then those ideas were taken and, and used by, by people creating the Gospels. But the, um, you know, and so the, the, the question that I try to answer is just what is the genre? And the genre is, I'm pretty sure, tipped to stern in the ministry of Jesus typology, not history. Well, that's weird because if you're familiar with the uh, the, the work of the uh, Cambridge scholar uh, Richard Bauckham, uh, he's demonstrated that uh, the genre of all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is actually eyewitness testimony. Right. Um, have you read uh, Bauckham's book, Jesus, no, I Jesus and the Eyewitnesses? No. Okay, which kind of leads to uh, you know a, a kind of a few questions here. Um, number one, um, you know, again, I'm familiar with your uh, your work. I've read your book and watched the the video. Um, one of the questions I have for you is uh, based upon the uh, press release that was uh, sent out on the eighth of October, and the headline read, "Ancient Confession Found: We Invented Jesus Christ." Now that's quite a headline. Um, yeah. And in my conversation with you, um, uh, you haven't appealed to any documents from uh, the, the first century with a confession that says that we've invented Jesus Christ. Is is uh, is that uh, uh, headline in your uh, press release misleading? No. Um, the, the, the confession is actually in the Cannibal Mary passage in Josephus. Um, they what what they've done is they've they created a an allegory of Jesus Christ and in it they have um uh a, a system of puns whereby um the the character is called the myth for the world whose killing will be seen as an abomination by the gentiles and this will bring uh bitter hatred onto the jews and in the uh, the context of the allegory, there really isn't any equivocation. It's it is simply the um, the description of the creation of Jesus Christ. Um, uh, 
So the the question is, is can the the passage be disputed as an allegory of Jesus? And I, I showed in the uh, in the lecture, I showed how that was not possible because of, in fact, the very stuff I was showing to you before that, you know, you, you just cannot possibly have uh, these this vivid kind of parallels occurring within a sequence. So the um, the the Flavians were very proud of, I think, their uh, creation. In fact, vanity was the whole purpose behind the uh, creation of the prefiguration typology. Mm-hmm. And so they they did uh, leave this uh, um, uh, confession. Um, it can only be determined analytically, but again, um, you know, when you... <laughs> When you have uh, you know stories like the ones that I read that are obviously prefiguration, then you don't really have, I don't think, any reasonable way of um, avoiding the fact that the Cannibal Mary passage, the human Passover lamb in Josephus, is in fact uh, an allegory of the character in the Gospels. So the the thrust of your argument basically is 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 based upon what you believe to be statistical probability regarding the typological parallels that supposedly exist between uh, Josephus's uh, you know War of the Jews and uh, basically the uh, uh, the military campaign of Titus. Uh, to the ministry of Jesus. But then this kind of leads to, you know, what I would think to be kind of the more interesting questions. Yeah. And that is, is this is, has to do with the weighting of the different evidences that exist. Basically, your ba- your whole hypothesis is based upon you cracking a typological code and then claiming, you know, st- some statistical probability of that code uh, not being, you know, what you interpret it to be. But the problem is, is that there's a whole lot of other evidences that uh, need to be taken into consideration that have nothing to do with allegory, typology, or, or, or codes of that type. And it also has to do with, uh, you know, non-Christian, uh, you know, discussions of uh, Christianity prior to the Flavian Empire, um, yeah, the Flavian emperors. And uh, my question immediately would be... Well, I'm sorry, just back up a second. Um, what would that be, Chris? Uh, for instance, Cornelius Tacitus in his uh, discussion of the uh, fire in Rome, which took place in 64 AD. Yeah. Uh, Cornelius Tacitus makes it clear that, uh, that, the, uh, that Nero pinned the blame for the fire in Rome on uh, the Christians uh, that were uh, living in Rome at yeah. the time. Yeah. As you know, there's... There is um, there is a lot of uh, contestation about that passage. So, um, uh, well, actually, it's not it's not a favorable passage for Christianity. Let me read to you from uh, Tacitus's sure. annals here, yeah. uh, talking about the fire in Rome. Here's what uh, Tacitus says: So far, the precautions taken were suggested by human prudence. Now, means were sought for appeasing deity, and application was made to uh, the Sibylline books. As to the injunction of which public prayers were offered to uh, Vulcan, Ceres, uh, Persephone, and Juno was uh, propitiated by the matrons first in the capital and then at the nearest point of the seashore where water was drawn for sprinkling the temple and image of the goddess. Ritual banquets and all the night vigils were celebrated by women in the married state, but neither human help nor imperial munificence nor all of the modes of placating the heaven could stifle the scandal 
or dispel the belief that the fire had taken place by order. Therefore, to scotch the rumor, Nero substituted as culprits uh, the end punishment with the utmost refinements of cruelty, a class of men loathed for their vices, whom the crowd styled as Christians. Christus, the founder of the name, had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate, and the pernicious superstition was checked for a moment, only to break out once more, not merely in Judea, the home of the disease, but in the capital itself, where the things, where all things horrible or shameful in the world collect and find a vogue. Now, what I find fascinating about this uh, this particular citation from uh, from Tacitus, uh, number one, Tacitus was alive in 64 A.D. He was 12 years old at the time, and so uh, he was alive at the time that the fire took place under uh, Nero's uh, reign in uh, Rome and was fully aware of the explanation and excuses. And Tacitus is known as a very careful historian. Um, and to you basically claim that somehow this, this needs to be disputed because it mentions Christians, it doesn't mention them favorably at all. It basically describes Christians as basically being scum and, and, uh, and you know, people who are not favorable to the Roman Empire. It's, so this isn't a favorable uh, right. at I will, all. Oh, yeah, yeah I, I agree. I mean... Um, and that is actually, you know, a nice uh, piece of evidence supporting the historicity of Jesus. It, the weaknesses, of course, are in the uh, the term Christian, whether or not the original autograph was Christus or Crestus. The, there, of course, is the, that huge argument about that. But to me, the um, uh, I don't buy any of this because um, the the term Christian was you know, I think not well understood at this point in time, uh, perhaps it still isn't, but uh, at that moment, there was a Messianic movement that could have been easily identified as uh, Christians, um, if in fact Tacitus did use that expression. Um, and if, if, if that was the case, then he's not talking about the, you know, Roman Catholic Christians, uh, the you know the, that kind. He's talking about the Messianic movement that rebelled, which would have been um, the one that would have set fire to Rome. I mean, you know, bear in mind in in sixty six, a few years later, you have a Messianic movement, a movement of Christians that actually kicks Rome out of Judea and sets up a nation state. So. I would just say that would be the uh, likely uh, Christians that would have set fire to Rome. So, so in your explanation, then um, yeah. there's it's not it's not Christians; it's those Christians. It's a whole other set of Christians that apparently haven't survived to this day that were the ones burned at the stake and tortured and blamed for the fire of Rome. Yeah, certainly. I mean. If you um, if you look at that that whole from the year one through the year like 140, um, the Christians that were taken to Rome and and killed would certainly have been um, the uh, followers of uh, you know some Christ or some Messiah um, that uh, was militaristic. They wouldn't have been the um, uh, you know the the kind of Christians that would have been produced by reading the Gospels. Um, yeah, you know, but see, the thing is, is that yeah. Tacitus actually takes great pains to explain which Christians he was talking about. He's talking, he says, uh, the crowd styled Christians, uh, yeah. you know, Christus is their founder, 
and he had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate. Right. I mean, if that's an original um, line, the, you know, the problem is, of course— Why wouldn't it be? Why, would, why wouldn't it be an original line? Well, you have um, a, a document that we have from the 11th century— I mean, this is what you're talking about. So, um, actually, Tacitus the, wrote this uh, in the early part of the second century. No, Chris, do you have a, a first century copy of his work? Do I need it? Yes. Okay, he so has, ba- if I don't have a first century copy of uh, the works of Cornelius Tacitus, then basically what you're saying is because you disagree with what he said about the Christians, we can't know anything about the Roman Empire, right? We can't know no. anything about we can't know anything about Julius yeah, Caesar. That's, that's we can't know anything about, about Nero. We can't know anything. No, I mean, no, I mean it, the thing it, is, that's is what that, you're saying. That's no, what you're no, saying because I, I, we don't have a first century copy. Okay, that means yeah. we can't trust the history in it. If we can't trust the history that he's giving us regarding the Christians, we can't trust the history regarding the Romans. Well, uh, which, well, I think actually I'm not sure you can trust this regarding the Romans, but you certainly can't trust. Um, Christian literature that comes in the 11th century when basically Christianity was the state religion of the, of the European uh, world, because, you know, at that point, the people would have been adding material as they are, could have had motivation to do so. What's the earliest copy that we have of the uh, wars of the Jews by Josephus? What's the earliest manuscript that we have? Oh, I think it's probably, I don't actually know, but I believe it's around the same time. So we can't trust it then, right? No, I mean, as far as well, first of all, I don't think it's history under any circumstance. I mean, I mean, what you can what you can trust is is that we have the text, okay. and what you can trust is is that if the text provides, um, you know, clarity uh, uh, in terms of, for example, typologic prefiguration, then that was, if it can be demonstrated, that was the intent of the author. Why should we be able to trust typological prefigurement from an 11th century oh, manuscript, I mean, a, but we can't trust the history? In a theoretical sense, you can't. I mean, it could have been, anyone could have added it at any time. But in terms of all of the um, uh, the specific logic of, of what we have been told by the historians about the era, um, what you have is a coherent interpretation, a coherent reading of the text. I mean... Christians um, uh, somehow overlook the fact that when Jesus talks about the coming of the Son of Man, that um, you know this this is a uh, an issue with the whole theological construction of uh, of Christianity because Jesus looks forward to this guy. He dates when he's going to come. He's clearly going to come during the war, and. Yet the individual Jesus Christ doesn't show up, so it looks like he's talking about somebody else. And so, you know, in terms of well, you know, what's the earliest gospel we have? Well, it's you know what fourth century isn't it Vaticanus? So you um, you don't have really in the literature uh, the kind of certainty that uh, you know that that would be regarded as you know, statistical perfection, um, replicationable, you know, the different kinds of mathematical proofs. You just don't have that. But what we do have, are, you know, is our own common sense, and we can, you know, read the material. And, um, you know, I would say that Tacitus's um, uh, statement is very good evidence that uh, Jesus uh, was historical. Um, it isn't 
you know, very compelling to me because it, it's it's essentially written so long after Christ's ministry. Um, the all of the issues that have come up over the actual um, expression of Christ or Christian, and then the the possibility that it could have been uh, interpolated or somehow added on to is also weighs on this thing. I, I would honestly just say, I mean, I just tell you straight out that the um, the evidence that I produce is stronger. Um, it's it is um, uh, how how so? <laughs> well, because it it produces um, an understanding of the text that. Um, can't really be explained away easily by any principle, uh, you know, of, of science or reason. When you have, um, or any, uh, or any evidence that uh, predates it that shows that it's well, incorrect. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's you know, the the you know, I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's uh, the 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 fact is is that when you have. Um, the kind of vivid parallels occurring in sequence, you know, you'd have to actually do some kind of statistical analysis on this. And I think spend some time and thought about it, but just in general, it's something that you can rely upon. It's something that, that makes sense in the real world today. You, you have the, um, the Tacitus um, statement. Um, There's also a statement in Josephus, which I, if you read the book, you know how Mm -hmm. I do that. Yep. But now, let, yeah, let me ask you another question. Are you, are you familiar with the work with people in the in the ministry of Jesus? You're, ta- you're dealing with people who are alive, you know, decades after he's passed away. And mm-hmm. so um, it now, isn't just eyewitness testimony. Now, are you familiar with the work of uh, Dr. Candida Moss? Uh, she's uh, written several uh, books regarding uh, Christian persecution. And, you know, her her uh, popular work is entitled The Myth of Persecution. How oh. early Christians invented a story of martyrdom. Are you, are you familiar with her work? No. Okay, and and she's uh, she's a professor at the University of Notre Dame, and um and so this is a you know she's actually uh, quite made quite a name for herself, uh, debunking a lot of uh, what she would consider outlandish mythological claims regarding Christian persecution uh, in the early uh, centuries of uh, of the Christian era. And uh, in her work entitled Ancient Christian Martyrdom, which is her academic work, she actually writes about the, uh, the Tacitus um, yeah, the, the Tacitus quote. And this is a gal who I would not say is you know, somebody who is out there basically being a Christian apologist. She spent quite a bit of time debunking a lot of the Roman Catholic mythologies around the martyrdoms of uh, many of the uh, Roman Catholic saints. And here's what she says uh, regarding the Tacitus quote. She says, The Jesus movement came to Rome in the mysterious pre-New Testament period, and by the time of Irenaeus's visit in the first quarter of the second century, the group there had become the largest assembly of Christians in the empire. The paucity of information about this period means that the contours of early Christian history in Rome can only be lightly sketched. Like other religious movements, it is reasonable to assume that the members of the Jesus movement entered Rome sometime in the 40s of the Common Era via the trade routes that passed through the port of Petuli. 
While there is considerable scholarly debate about the substance of Christianity's presence in the empire's capital and the identity of its earliest leaders, some terse, ambiguous evidence suggests that as early as the time of the Edict of Claudius, which was 49 CE, members of the Jesus movement were being identified as troublemakers. The evidence is problematic, but it seems that by the time of the fire of Rome in 64, Christians had attracted enough attention to be labeled arsonists by Nero, according to Tacitus, and it was not only their odious character that made them such suitable candidates, the dense populations of Christians in travestery, an area spared by the fire, appeared to be suspicious. So she's talking about, she basically is a gal who has very much made a career of debunking claims of Christian martyrdom. She affirms the Tacitus quote, and even notes the fact that in Tacitus's work, that one of the reasons given as a potential reason for why the Christians were pinned with starting the fire in 64 AD has to do with the fact that uh, uh, that their their part of town, their quarter of uh, Rome, didn't burn, and it's even named by uh, by Tacitus himself. So he- here's my question, and that is, uh, you know, um, why would you go against such notable scholars? Uh, such as uh, Candida Moss and others, who basic who are absolutely convinced that the the historical evidence shows that Christianity existed in Rome long before the Flavian Emperor. Well, I just think that uh, the statements you want to um, focus on in her comment was the paucity of evidence. Uh, yeah, I mean by paucity, there just isn't any. Um, there's no um, archaeologic evidence of any Christian, Roman Christian Jesus people in, in Rome before, toward the end of the first century. And, um, and at that time, the individuals who are all basically the first saints are all members of the Flavian family. So I just, I don't want to um, denigrate her, but just, I would just point out that in the statement you read, uh, it wasn't a paucity of evidence. It was an absolute absence of any evidence. There, there really wasn't. She didn't really present anything in terms of uh, well, she the makes, historicity of it. In her academic work, she specifically yeah, yeah, says that there's I, evidence that Christians feeling, existed at, as early as the Edict of uh, Claudius and in 64 CE. Yeah, yeah, you're appealing to authority. I, I, I heard the statement. I, well, actually, I'm, I'm appealing to uh, Cornelius Tacitus and basically right. showing that scholars completely back this up. That, that it's, well, that, hold, hold on. Back up. Back up. Um, are you saying that I, I cannot produce scholars that dispute Tacitus's statement? Well, the question is, with what evidence? With what evidence? Well, I mean, what evidence do you have that it's original? The, the fact is we, we're just doing the best we can with documents written in the 11th century. Um, Harnack, well, actually, you know, no. Tacitus' yeah, annals were that. written in the early part of the fir- of the second century. That's when they well, were written. Just because we do not have a first century copy every, of it doesn't time, mean that it that it, it should be called into question. Every time a document is copied, there is a chance that the bias of the copier is reflected in the document. This is a a principle of of uh, uh, of uh, how interpolation and documents are adjusted through history. In fact, yes, uh, but Tacitus's bias was clearly against the Christians. Well, but 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 Chris, hold on, buddy. Tacitus wasn't the one copying the document. 
in the 11th century, he was long gone. So I, I, I understand that, but I, I completely get it. But the thing is, is that if anything, if there's going to be changing that takes place, because Tacitus's bias is against the Christians, calling them all kinds of scum and and basically, you know, the refuse of the earth. Um, that don't you think that if there was going to be changing taking place, that the, the bias would have been changed from against Christians to for them? I don't think so. I think actually the if if, the, if they that whoever interpolated it um, may have uh, thought this was the best way to have a Roman express it. I mean, you know, you have to get into sort of like the psychology of the person who would be doing the the copying and what they're trying to achieve. And we just don't have any way to know this stuff. Um, but but you you're, you're going to trust Tacitus when he tells us about Nero. You're going to trust Tacitus when he tells us about Julius Caesar. You're going to tell no, you're going to you're going to trust him when he talks. No, about I would I, absolutely actually no. I I don't trust any of the Roman um, historians. Um, Tacitus, for example, um, claimed that the Messiah was the Flavian Caesar. Um, I don't think that's a statement that is real, but I think that um, it's recorded as having come from Tacitus. So, um, you know, it's, um, uh, I would, I would say that, that the Tacitus um, statement is, is certainly the best historical um, description of a, of a Jesus Christ movement, but it's hardly conclusive and uh, it isn't backed up by anything else. I mean, well, actually, are you familiar with the work of uh, Dr. Paul Meyer, who is the uh, Russell H. Siebert Professor of Ancient History at Western Michigan University? Actually, he's... I actually actually am familiar with him. Yeah, no. he, he's actually a guy who's uh, translated uh, Josephus's works yeah, into English. That's right. That's one of the reasons why I know him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he, he, are you familiar with uh, his work regarding um, a, a portion of the? Um, of the rabbinic Talmuds regarding Jesus. Yeah, actually, I um okay. I've not, I haven't read that. I, I have done a, a bit of work, and in in the next book, I'll have a bit on the Talmud and the Jesus passages in there, and and uh, um, try to you know do some decoding of them. So, but um, decoding. Uh, you know, the, let, let, let me let me. T- this is this passage yeah. from the Talmud. Uh, uh, Doctor Paul Meyer describes as. The death warrant for Jesus. And and here's what it says in the Talmud. It says, It has been taught that on the eve of the Passover, they hanged Yeshua Ha-Natsri, that would be Jesus the Nazarene. And an announcer went out in front of him for 40 days saying, He is going to be stoned because he practiced sorcery and enticed and led Israel astray. Anyone who knows anything in his favor, let him come and plead in his behalf. But not having found anything in his favor, they hanged him. On the eve of the Passover. Now, uh, P- Paul Meyer describes that uh, passage from the uh, Talmud as the basic the death the death warrant and the announcement of uh, you know Jesus as somebody who's a blasphemer who should uh, die the death in ancient Israel. So here's my question for you. Yeah. Okay. Since the whole your whole thesis basically says that Jesus was an invention of the Flavian emperors as a means of politically putting down. Uh, the continued threat uh, with radical, militaristic, messianic-type Judaism. Yeah, that wasn't how I characterized it, but you're, you're close. It's just yeah. not, that's not actually accurate. Yeah, okay. Go ahead. Okay, but that, that's the, basically it's a political agenda yeah. as a means of psychologically controlling the Jews. 
How is it that the Jews then were so uh, taken by this, uh, this that they ended up going back and backdating a death warrant for uh, Jesus of Nazareth if he never existed? You mean the, um, the passage in the Talmud? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the Talmud, you're talking about 500 CE. Um, I mean, basically, this is like, um, you know, if someone uh, wrote a story about a character named Superman and then someone else, you know, wrote another story. I mean, what you really have to do is to know what the autograph was of the original story because basically what would probably be the basis for the Talmudic stories are, um, you know, uh, traditions that would circulate based upon the Gospels. So if the Gospels are fiction, then the Talmud stuff is just a kind of uh, of reflection of, of that original um, genre. And Don't you think uh, the more reasonable response from the Jews would be Yeshua who? Well, um, I don't think they would have been unaware of Christianity in 500 CE. Uh, well, actually, this this portion of the Talmud goes back into the uh, first century. Uh, I don't think so, brother. You're talking that the what's it, it, Mishnah? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's like 200 CE. You're you're already well into uh, um, uh, uh, Christianity, and you're actually past the Bar Kokhba rebellion. See, I mean, so again, you, by, you, by why years, why so, would the so Jews uh, why would the Jews backdate a death warrant for Jesus if Jesus never existed? It's it's the same thing as why would someone write a story about Superman knowing Lois Lane? I mean, it's the the only thing here that that has to be determined is is what is the basis of these stories and and the the most obvious one is simply that these are uh, traditions that circulated based upon uh, the Gospels and upon Christian stories that were circulated uh, you know from one fifty to you know through this period and so. Um, you know, it's, uh, uh, it isn't this, this kind of stuff is not, you know, I mean, you know, you can take it for what it's worth. I don't see it as any, has any, as having any particular weight in terms of evidence at all, but, uh, um, that's just me. I mean, uh, when you're, when you're a hundred years past, uh, the, uh, the authorship of a document, I'm sorry, but I'm just going to have to, you know, rely on the fact that that, that document was the, uh, um, was the basis for the information, not not something else. Now, now, have you have you read Shelby Foote's uh, three part series on the Civil War? No, you ha- you haven't. Uh, by the way, have, absolutely have. fantastic. You, you saw the uh, uh, the PBS uh, thing that came out in the nineties, right? Uh, yeah. On the Civil War, Shelby Foote was uh, one of the guys who uh, regularly appeared on you know on that uh, wonderful wonderful Ken Burns uh, documentary on the Civil War. Um, And Shelby Foote, uh, prior to his death, was considered to be probably the 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 person who at that time living knew the most about the Civil War. And it's important to note that uh, Shelby Foote was born long after the Civil War uh, took place. And uh, and as a historian, uh, never witnessed a single battle. Um, and yet his work is considered to be seminal and authoritative in giving us an understanding of uh, of the Civil War itself. The, the way you're describing things basically calls into question how history is written and how it's done. And uh, and basically, if I were to buy into uh, your, your your way of thinking, I couldn't even believe that uh, Shelby Foote was giving me any accurate information at all regarding uh, the Civil War. 
Well, you'd have more um, uh, points of data to be able to associate his theories with than than you can in the first century. I mean, I mean, one of the uh, problems. Whoa, 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 whoa! Based on what are you saying that? Because what we know of the uh, ancient Romans is is that they they were meticulous in their documentation. In fact, uh, it's uh, it was Irenaeus. No, it's yeah, Irenaeus. He he himself points out the fact that during his lifetime, you could go to Rome and read the annals of Pontius Pilate and get the historical account from the documents of hey, Chris, the, of the crucifixion of Jesus hey, Christ. Hey, Chris, the Romans are are famous for their extermination of literature. Um, until the Dead Sea Scrolls were found and buried in pots and caves, um, there had never been a single scrap of literature from the Messianic movement that had ever been found. But uh, hold grown, on, they're not. Grown, the Romans were not known. The Romans were not known for destroying their own governmental documents. Well, they, it, you know, I, I mean, you and again, the the, the document that I'm talking about, Irenaeus was talking about sending people to Rome to read the annals of. Pontius Pilate and what took yeah. place during his governorship of Judea. Yeah. And um, now Pilate's annals, uh, we don't have currently. I, I no, we don't, but we know that they exist because people reference them at, you right. know, in, in the, in so the second know, century. I mean, we know Pilate was, or at least we can assume Pilate was a historical character because of the way he's been represented. Um, um, you know, one of the the, when you get into genres, um, one of the problems, of course, in the Gospels is simply that uh, you have supernatural activities. And so this— Why is know, that a problem? Well, because um, this it would normally be fictional rather than historical. Yeah, so, but again, the claim is, is that Jesus is God in human flesh, so the miraculous would actually be expected. Yeah, but I mean, um, you know, that's, that is that is a—I don't think that's not really a— a position of reason that's a matter of faith really how do how can you a priori say that there that miracles are not possible i can't but but that's what you're doing no i'm not yes you are you're calling it into question i'm saying that straight on its face i'm saying that the uh when when you get into um the supernatural, the burden is of proof is upon the, the, the claimant. Yeah, and because, see, that's the funny thing, because when you read the New Testament documents, is that it they all claim to be eyewitness testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which kind of leads into my next question. Yeah. If I were to buy your hypothesis that Jesus was basically a fictional character created by the Flavian emperors, wouldn't yeah. it then also necessarily follow that, um, that I must also believe that Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Apostle Paul, Peter, James, and Jude, and and all of the other apostles are also fictional creations of the Flavians. Well, yes, um, the um, certainly the the authors of the Gospels. Uh, I mean, there there are individuals who wrote the Gospels. You can see a different hand. The Greek is often uh, distinctive between the different texts, and and they have a different perspective to to some extent so um you can see that they may have been designed for different groups but um the uh you know the the question of course is is what genre are the individuals who are producing the gospels writing in um not whether or not they existed and um since i can show that uh it is typology that the uh, uh backward looking you can essentially take the character of Jesus and find the prefiguration elements from the Old Testament 
and forward-looking, you can see the prefiguration elements to the Son of Man who's going to come in 40 years. Um, I would say that this sort of gives you an understanding of, of the, 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 uh, of the authors. Uh, you know, you can call them whatever you want. I mean, to some extent, it's sort of like arguing that, you know, the Odyssey wasn't written by Homer, but by someone with the same name who looked like him. I mean, we don't know who these people are. There's no, no way to know. And so the, the question really becomes more, what is the genre of literature they produce? That's a knowable, at least that's, that is more knowable than trying to guess about their historical nature as far as the um, – And again, I would point you to the work of uh, Richard Bauckham of Cambridge who've, who yeah. has basically you know, written the definitive work on this, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, and he shows that the Gospels themselves all are in the genre of eyewitness account, eyewitness testimony. Then you take a look at something like the Book of Acts. Uh, Dr. Luke specifically set out to write a history in the same genre as uh, you know Greek Roman histories of of the day. Then you have all of the epistles, and these are letters written to uh, to different churches. And what I find fascinating in all of this, you know, for instance, uh, when you look at the Book of Acts, uh, we've got the missionary journeys of uh, Peter as well as the Apostle Paul, and an explanation as to the spread of Christianity. And when you read something like F.F. Bruce's book, the New Testament documents are they reliable? F.F. Bruce, you know, uh, of Oxford, Oxford did a very great job of uh, demonstrating that uh, Doctor Luke uh, nailed it as far as his uh, historical. He was like a guy who was fluent in local titles, particular governorships, and how uh, different regions of the Roman Empire were being governed, who they were being governed by at the time, and in uh, the Book of uh, Acts itself finishes somewhere in the uh, early to mid 50s uh you know long before the uh long before Vespasian and Titus and uh, Domitian and uh and you know it as far as its historical reliability it is shown to be just absolutely stellar uh in its work so again so you you take a look Pastor at the you, you look at the genre of yeah. uh, something like the book of acts it's it's purposely written to be a history. So in the in the New Testament, we've got four eyewitness testimonies. We've got a book that's uh, purposely modeled to be a history. Then you have a bunch of epistles written by apostles to churches that had already been planted. And then you've got this outlier, which would be uh, uh, the uh, the Book of Revelation itself, which is you know a, a different genre altogether. But internally, uh, just looking at the documents, there's no reason for us to believe that they're anything other than what uh, what they are, what they what on the surface they claim to be. Well, um, I don't know what. I mean, if you're going to create a, a religion, obviously, you know, you need to create some kind of plausible structure for the thing, and um, I don't think that there's yeah there are, there are details. Um, uh, even in the Gospels, which are clearly based in, in or at least uh, can can cite uh, historical events as you know as what they are describing, and this is true in Acts as well. But um, but the, uh, but this kind of leads to the question: uh, Christianity really, is so much I mean, different. In other words, it's really just like you're sort of saying, well. There's just a whole lot of Superman books. How can that not be about a historical person? There's just so many of them. Well, you see, know? That's, the thing is this, is that th this is what makes Christianity so different than any other 
of the uh, the Greco-Roman you know or even pagan religions of the day is that uh, you know Luke makes takes great pains to make it clear that Jesus was born at a particular time in a particular place under a particular emperor in a particular region under a particular governor okay whereas uh, all of the ancient mythological um, you know pagan religions are are kind of like Star Wars they all took place a long time ago in kind of the foggy past of of you know mythological history but Christianity no, anchors, no, 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 Christianity no, no, anchors back, its back, events in Roman uh, imperial history. Back up, back up. Apollonius of, of Tyna um, actually has uh, gospels that are very much in the genre of Jesus, and you've got disciples and communication between him and historical individuals. And um, so that was a absolutely dead pipe certain production of the imperial court because it's actually mentioned in the in the preface to uh, to the literature. And so... Um, you know, the Gospels are, uh, uh, you know, very unusual and um, uh, extraordinary literature because, I mean, for one thing, you know, the, 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 one of the problems with, uh, with the character historically, Jesus, is that um, he's kind of pacifistic and pro-Roman. Um, and this really isn't something that uh, is plausible um, from the uh, history of the Jews and certainly not it doesn't fit well into the era. Um, if you read the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are, I think, uh, without any question, uh, the real voice of uh, Jewish messianic uh, individuals, um, what well, you see definitely that, of the Essene community, you know, which again, you know, uh, no, I, I, I don't think I think you you really want to think more of the uh, messianic movement. Um, in any case, the Essenes were, were recorded by Josephus as having been leaders of the rebellion. So whatever you want to characterize this group is, uh, is fine. But if you look at their literature, if you read like the War Scroll or, you know, the Damascus document, you can see that they're militaristic, right? And this is what naturally you would expect Jews to be like because their religion, the Torah, is a very much warrior tradition. You know, David, uh, he doesn't, um, you know, cure people, he cuts their head off. And he's the progenitor Messiah, which is just basically meaning king, who at that point, there's no distinction between politics and religion. And so the king is always someone that has connection to God. And so um, in in that literature, you know, you've got uh, this, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, you've got xenophobia, drive the Romans out, they really want to have uh, a geographical um, religion uh, reestablished and the Romans to leave. And so when you look at the character Jesus and you try to put him into historical context, that's the very first question that uh, comes about is the Messianic movement that drove Rome out was the nationalist Messianic movement because otherwise they couldn't have driven Rome out and established a nation state. So this was the real national messianic movement this was the christians of judea and so the question is as well they began rebelling around the year one there was a character named judas the galilean uh that is famous for his rebellion and then from there on there was just a never-ending series of petty rebellions and skirmishes um leading up to the full-scale war in, in 66 and so how can the character Jesus fit into this era and this religion? Um, well, not very well. 
Um, he, he doesn't really, um, first of all, there's nothing in the Gospels about the national Messianic movement, which I really find odd because um, this movement had the population behind them. And so there should be some description of it in the Gospels. I don't see any. What I see well, is... Well, actually, there is. It's not a description, oh. but we know that one of Jesus' disciples was a zealot. Right. Well, we know they, that is a play on words because we know he's, you know, they call him a zealot. They, they also have Judas the Iscariot, which seemingly is, is related to the term Sakari. But the fact is, is the movement is not described. And so I think that that's a, um, uh, it weighs against the, uh, the historicity of the whole, of the whole character they're describing because. But you're basically saying you, you are assuming that if, if the document were a legit, you know, early part of the first century, that it would have these things, and because it doesn't, therefore it can't be true. You're basically no, arguing said, in a circle. I, I, that. I said it weighed against it, and and I think that you're that, arguing that, in a circle based upon an assumption and an argument from silence. That's not no, positive no. evidence. No, I'm just saying that. Well, I mean, first of all, it is uh, an argument from silence, but nevertheless, sometimes those arguments, in fact, are have some structure and some some power to them. uh, It's a question that uh, Christian theologians should honestly attempt to address, is why um, does the Messianic movement, the national Messianic movement, why is it not in the Gospels, and how could a, uh, a, uh, a sect that certainly would have been attacked by the zealots, I mean, they would have been the idea of Jesus wandering around the Galilean countryside with this philosophy, this particularly claiming to be a messianic tradition. Um, how could that have actually happened historically? Now, uh, again, again, I, I completely disagree with your assertion that it's not, it's not in the gospels. It's actually there. For instance, let me give you, let me give you two examples. Okay. Uh, Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. Okay. Uh, one of the mothers of his disciples, you know, comes up to him and says, Jesus, you know, when you come into your kingdom, have one of my sons sit on your right and the other sit on your left, you know, because what is she thinking? She's thinking that Jesus is going into Jerusalem to flex his political muscle and basically establish an earthly kingdom. Okay. That doesn't turn out that way. That's not Jesus's mission. But then we get into the book of Acts and we have this, this funny little incident right before Jesus's ascension. And that is, is that it's actually kind of damaging to the character of the, uh, of Jesus's disciples, because right before Jesus ascends, his disciples ask him, well, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And, and, you know, Jesus has to basically say, listen, it's, it's this is the final and you guys just flunked it. So, written in within the eyewitness testimony regarding Jesus is oftentimes you'll see it in several different passages in all of the different gospels is the ex, is the really kind of misunderstanding of the messiah looking at him as coming in as a warrior king and Jesus oftentimes has to set himself and what he's really doing against those expectations that's one of the major things that's throughout well, the, the that, new testament that. All right, we are going to pause my spirited conversation with Joseph Atwell right there and pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash piratechristian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at piratechristian. Quick break, when we come back, the balance of today's conversation with Joseph Atwell regarding Caesar's Messiah. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. 
We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. My name is Rex, and if you study with my eight-week program, you will learn a self-feeder system that I developed over two seasons of preaching in the Octagon. It's called Rex Quando. I need a volunteer to come up here and show that they trust me. Um, here. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your pastor. Bow to your pastor! Okay, now I'm going to give you one chance. One chance, people. Turn around. Turn around. All right. Now fall back and I'll catch you. Ow. That was pretty good. Now, listen, everybody. The reason why he fell was because he didn't have enough faith. Go sit down. Okay, when I fall, I fall in slow motion every time. Now, in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my eight-week program, you're going to learn these things. First off... In Rex Quando, we use the buddy system. No more reading the Bible solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. Do you think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Bible pants. Yeah, you have to be pretty righteous to rock these babies. Do you think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off. My students will learn how to walk on water, heal babies, raise the dead, and be extreme. Now, for only one $300 seat offering, you can sign up right now for my eight-week program here at Guts Church. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Yeah! Hooray! That was a great happy birthday song. Okay, Charlie, time to open up your presents. All right, Grandpa. Uh, let's see what we have here. Oh, yay. I've always wanted new teeth. Oh, sorry, dear. I seem to have accidentally wrapped my spare dentures. <laughs> Here's your real present. Oh, look. It's a glow stick. We all know how much you like Star Wars, so we got you one of those lightsaber thingies. Oh, 
Thanks. Do not fear, nerds of the world. Never again will you have to deal with poorly made gifts and cheap knockoffs. Just tell your antiquated relatives about ThinkGeek. At ThinkGeek, you will find a vast selection of creative and quality products to tickle your every fancy. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Warning, if you think that Jesus is an invention of the Flavian emperors, well, you got a big problem, and that is that Christians existed before the Flavians ever took power. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. And, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith and then send it to post office box 508 fishers indiana zip code 46038 and let me thank you for your support we cannot continue to do this work that we're doing without it now here's the balance of my spirited conversation uh, recorded earlier today with joseph atwill of caesar's messiah and the covert messiah conference here we go that's exactly right. And and that is, in, in fact, the correct uh, interpretation. The problem is it's just not a very plausible historical one. Um, the Messiah would why, why, why wouldn't it be a plausible historical one? What, it, what, somebody, in, what evidence can you provide that says that it's not plausible? Show me a, a Messiah or a, a king in the Old Testament that is, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, would say render to Caesar what is Caesar. Uh, well, again, this is this goes to the idea that all kingdoms are established by God to basically punish evildoers. Yeah, this, is fleshed, right. now, this is okay, fleshed out. In, this is fleshed out. This is fleshed out. In that kind of an argument, that's fine. But don't pretend that it's an argument based in logic. It's an argument based in faith. I mean, that's fine. I, I understand your position. I totally respect it. But um, the fact is, is that. Um, the uh, if you look in the scrolls and you look in the Torah, what you see are warrior kings. It's warrior literature, and Jesus is is different. So that it may not dis- necessarily mean he cannot be historical. It just requires some kind of explanation, particularly in this exact era, because you know that the Messianic movement is afoot, is powerful, and it's in fact it's arming itself to drive Rome out. So. Um, this was actually this this puzzle that when I when I started reading the scrolls, I got confused because I had been brought up, uh, you know, a Christian and had uh, studied the Gospels uh, as a young person, and I was quite surprised to see the mess, messianic descriptions in the scrolls of a warrior. 
that was how turned around I was as far as the history of the era. And then when I studied it, I realized that, wait a second, uh, the national movement was warrior uh, Messianic movement. The, the, uh, like I was saying, going back to the Tacitus quote, um, that would seem to me to be far more likely to be the Christians that uh, eventually drove Rome uh, out of Judea, not uh, those that uh, Jesus is giving his advice uh, in terms of uh, cooperation with the empire. Now, what I find fascinating is this, is that when you read again the eyewitness testimony in the Gospels, uh, in particular, you know, Jesus on the road to Emmaus, he meet, meets some of his disciples after he's resurrected from the dead, and they're despondent because they had thought that Jesus was the Messiah and were convinced that because he was crucified by the uh, the Jewish officials, uh, you know, at the behest of Pontius Pilate, or kind of the other way around, um, that that uh, that meant that that he somehow wasn't the Messiah. There, there was that expectation of the warrior Messiah right there in Jesus' own followers, and Jesus... Uh, on the road to Emmaus, takes the time to walk them through and basically said, you know, did not the Christ have to suffer? And he goes into the Old Testament to show that the the Messiah was to come as a suffering servant. And let me read to you a portion of Isaiah the prophet. Okay, this is written long before the, uh, the Flavians and long before Jesus was on earth. And it says, Isaiah 53, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and we esteemed him smitten, uh, stricken by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was bruised for our iniquities. And the punishment, the chastisement that brought us peace uh, was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so the idea here is is that uh, one of the things that is so radical about Jesus that you rightly point out is that he hasn't come to flex military muscle, but instead comes as a suffering servant, is actually answered in the Old Testament texts themselves. And when you take a look historically at what was being taught in the Essene community, what was being taught within the Pharisaic community, and even in the Zadakim, is this expectation that they, the Messiah is going to come and kick the Romans out, and what they were doing is basically picking selective texts from the Old Testament and uh, basically suppressing others. Jesus, in his first advent, doesn't come to flex political muscle or military muscle. Instead, he comes to seek and save the lost and to die for the sins of the world. This is what Isaiah the prophet reveals to us. Well, I think um, uh, that what you have is uh, you know kind of a correct understanding of the how the flow of information moves into the gospel's authors minds um it looks to me like uh, what the roman authors were doing was trying to morph um judaism's uh, um scriptures and messianic prophecies into their character um what's interesting is that the Flavians had two Jewish families that they worked with, the Herods and the um, Alexanders. Um, the Alexanders produced Philo, the most famous uh, Jewish intellectual of, of the century. And, um, the, and Philo's scripture was very Hellenized. In other words, it, it essentially tried to take scripture and uh, to cast a kind of... Um, uh, more cooperation with the empire perspective to the scriptures. Um, 
The other family that the, the uh, Flavians worked with was the Herods. And if you read Caesar's Messiah, I show how these three families were just absolutely entwined financially, romantically, and, and militarily. Uh, Tiberius Alexander, Philo's nephew, was actually the Flavians' um, uh, general during the siege of Rome. So you can see that uh, uh, these Jewish intellectuals had, had no love for their religion or, or uh, their people. They were simply completely in the... Uh, in the grip of the uh, the financial world of the of the Flavian Caesars, but um, the Herods had tried to produce a king um, by breeding to Maccabean women, and so the idea was they would um, marry a Maccabean, uh, have a child, a son, raise the individual in Rome, bring him back, and present him as a king, um, and so really. I think this is where the ideas in Christianity come from. It comes from uh, the attempts by, you know, the Alexanders to create a more um, Hellenized version of Jewish scripture and by the Herods to essentially establish a, a Messiah or king of the Jews that had been uh, Romanized. Um, these but, efforts- but then again, you, you don't actually have any documents that say that this is what they were doing. This is all conjecture on your part based upon well, I mean, some code uh, that you cracked. You know, we, well, uh, no, those, those things are facts. In other words, uh, the, the, uh, the bringing about the breeding with the Maccabean women is well known. It's not something that anyone disputes. Yeah, but that and has nothing to do with the history of Jesus this- Christ. Ben Philo's literature is in existence, so you can inspect yeah, but the, and look at it. That, see, that has, see, again, it has nothing to do with the history of Jesus. I mean, well, the, the two are not connected. Back up, back up. Um, Philo's literature is often cited by scholars as having been the basis for a lot of the um, uh, kind of non-Jewish or non-traditional Jewish theology you find in the Gospels. I mean, even things like the, the term logos actually comes from Philo. So the... Um, the idea that the idea that um, uh, you know there isn't just a natural kind of process by which the Gospels was developed by this circle, I don't think can really stand much scrutiny. Um, so, you know the um, uh, you know the 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 general idea, and I want to just correct one point: they weren't really trying, I think, with Christianity to uh, convert zealots. I think that. You know, going back to that earlier point, I just wanted to point out that really what they're trying to do is slow down the missionary activity. Well, well, well um, wait a second. If your timeline is right, there's no zealots that exist. I mean, by the middle of the seven, of the seventies, uh, the zealots have been conquered. I mean, the, the temple is gone. Uh, Masada has taken place. The mass suicide has taken place, and the Jews have been kicked out of Judea, and the whole region has been renamed from Judea to Palestina. And so, you know, th- th- there. There's no, there's no, there's no ongoing threat. The Jews are conquered. This would be like us trying to now protect ourselves from Hitler and the Nazis. They're gone. Right. Well, I mean, let me just correct you. Um, following the end of the of the war, sixty six to uh, seventy three, um, there was another rebellion led by a messianic aspirant in Alexandria. Um, uh, and this would have been, gee whiz, you know, seventy five, eighty, and now. When you actually look at when the Flavians were writing the Gospels, which is getting close to uh, the end of the first century, you're actually only a few years away from uh, what's called the uh, Kiddos War. Are you familiar with that? No. Well, in in 115, um, you had an 
a, a messianic outbreak in the uh, diaspora communities. Um, and uh, in Serenia, they essentially, uh, um, uh, Dio Cassius recorded that um, the Jews got military control over a number of the cities and slaughtered 220,000 Romans um, uh, in Egypt, uh, they were able to drive Rome out of the breadbasket. Um, in Cyprus, um, the um, I think I'm not sure who which record which historian, but one of them said that uh, the Cypriot Jews um, gained control over the land and massacred all 240,000 Greeks on the island. Um, the, the, the outbreak then sp- sprang up in Mesopotamia. It got into Judea. Uh, where, what's his name, uh, Lucius, I believe, is the leader at that point, and they, Rome tried to capture him, they eventually did, but by 120, they had had, they got it under control, but they had to leave, um, you know, a lot of legions inside of Judea because the situation was so explosive, and then this was followed in 133 by the Bar Kokhba Rebellion, which was one of the bloodiest things that, that Rome ever put up with. So a, a lot of people um, who kind of think about the Gospels, and they say, well, gee, the war was over. Well, bear in mind, the Gospels are being written, you know, 85, 90, going on to the end of the first century. And at that point, the Messianic movement had become so powerful, with so so much a threat, that when it sprang to life in 115, um, the the slaughter was just beyond belief. I mean, you had okay. basically... Yeah, but hang, hang on a second here. So yeah. according to your theory, then, the Gospels are not even written until 85 or 90? Uh, I think they were probably started um, when uh, Titus took over um, because the theological structure, you know, the Father and the Son of God, this was, a, you know, an obvious representation of, uh, you know, uh, Titus and his, and his dad. It probably, I would think that when they started writing it was when um, Titus attempted to have his father created as a deus by the Roman Senate. Um, which would be what so, year? Which year is that? Uh, gee, was uh, um, I'm not actually sure. Maybe 80, 79, 80, something like that. Okay, so so there, so, so if there's no gospels written until seventy nine eighty, that means there's no Christians prior to seventy nine or eighty, right? Right. Okay. How long does it take to spread, and how do they spread it? Because well, you know Titus, he was only in power for a few years. Two years, yeah. Um, I I think that the Flavian um, effort uh, to establish Christianity was probably very, very, um, uh, you know, didn't really go go very far. Um, the the Gospels. See, one one thing that uh, you know. Yeah, but the, how do you then account for the fact that there's Christians long before the uh, the Flavian? Well, the one thing, the one em- thing you don't really need the, you don't need the Gospels to have have Christians. The Gospels, even though they look like religious literature, are actually a vanity piece. In other words, the whole point of the Gospels is to set up the prefiguration typology of the Son of Man who's going to come and do all the things that Titus Flavius does. Uh, yeah, but that's think- just an assertion. That's an allegation based on your theory. No, no, it's no, not actually proved. You, oh, have, oh, you have no up, documents back, to back, say back, this. Back up, back up, back up. Um, Jesus gives very good information about this, Chris. He says that the, the temple will be destroyed. 
right? The Galilean towns will be crushed. Yes. Um, Jerusalem will be encircled with a wall. Yeah, right? and he that's, said all of that now, in 30, up, back 33 up, back up, back up. AD. Now, he now, said when, all of that in 33 AD. Chris, when did those events occur? What, they, these are unique historical events. When did they occur? The temples destroyed in 70, Masada's in 73. Right. Okay, so there you go. So, uh, and Jerusalem. And what does that prove? What, what does that prove? You say, there, it, there you go. What does that prove? It proves that Jesus was envisioning the Son of Man to come during the war because that's when those events occurred. Uh, no. He, Why not? No, Jesus was talking, you know, he was prophesying the destruction of the temple. He was not saying the yeah. Son of Man's coming, you know, when the temple's destroyed. That's He was not pinning his uh, second coming to that. Uh, well, um, <laughs> I, I would have to disagree. Um, at that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds and great power and glory. Uh, Mark thirteen. He's talking and, about and his. In, he's talking about his return past, at the oh, end of the back, age. Chris, Chris, back up, back up. And he says, "Do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down." He predicts the abomination of desolation which occurs. He also predicts the encircling of Jerusalem. He names cities and Galilee that's going to be crushed mm-hmm. at that time. Men will see the Son of Man. Now, I I would just beg to differ with you, buddy. That's that's as clear a description of uh, of what Titus did uh, and and his military achievements. Yes, as, Jesus as did could, prophesy uh, Titus's military achievements with exactly. the with the culmination of the destruction of the temple. Exactly. That I word And now and now one last point. You you recognize that Titus did claim to be the Jewish Christ. Oh, yeah. I'm familiar okay. with... Uh, All right. So, so, in other words, when when I say that the Son of Man in the Gospels is Titus, he's a pretty good candidate. I mean, he comes at exactly the right time, he does exactly the right things, and he does claim to be the Christ. So, so when... That's, see, that's, that's one of the, the things that I'm always kind of surprised with, is people, when they come to my theory and they go, God, I, I really find your theory implausible. But, you know... The fact is, because the character Jesus has been so prefigured, you know, they've got all these prefigured elements in his in his in the, make, in the makeup of the character. There should be some prefiguration of the character Jesus sees coming that he gives his messianic title to. So, really, I don't think it's. I mean, people are, you know, they they. I think that it's just been kind of an enormous oversight in scholarship that people don't look for prefiguration to the Son of Man, and that they don't look in the history of the war because that's what Jesus is talking about. All right, so let me let me kind of put a bow on all of this, okay? Sure. All right, so according to your theory, the Flavian emperors are responsible for creating Christianity and the fictional character, character of Jesus Christ. And yeah. the Gospels were not written until... Uh, you know, late seventies, early eighties, in the you know first century, there were no Christians prior to that. But in order to believe your theory, you know, where what you claim to be this 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 weight of evidence, the weight of evidence yep. basically falls on the fact that you claim that there's typological parallels between the character Jesus and the Emperor Titus and uh, his campaign in Judea. Okay. Yep. And that, therefore, you know, historically there would be no Christians. Therefore, I must somehow basically say Tacitus had it wrong when he blamed 
the fire of Rome on the Christians in 64 AD and even named their, their leader Christus and said that he was uh, put to death under Pontius Pilate, that somehow that's spurious because uh, the, 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 the greater weight of evidence needs to actually fall with this code that you could, this typological code that you cracked. Then I also have to believe, if I believe you, that uh, the death warrant for Jesus was fabricated, you know, long after the fact by Jews who were so spooked by this fictional character Jesus that they felt it necessary in their in the Talmuds to go backdate a uh, you know a story talking about them you know saying that Jesus was a blasphemer and a, and a sorcerer and and was uh, leading Israel astray okay and rather than this them just doing the obvious thing going Jesus who and then i also have to believe that guys like the apostle Paul totally fabricated as well that he didn't he wasn't a student of Gamaliel that he didn't plant any churches around uh the uh you know any anywhere in the uh Mediterranean area not at Ephesus not at Philippi not at Thessalonica not at Corinth that that all of the stories of his missionary journeys those were totally fabricated Luke was fa- you know was a guy who was fabricated all of the eyewitness testimony in the uh, in the in the gospels that's not really eyewitness testimony it's a story akin to superman in the marvel comics things and yet uh, all of the historians and the historical evidence actually works against you even by skeptical scholars well, well, within got, within well, history but, with, but within the field of history well, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I'm just I'm just curious what historians are referring to. All right, let me give you two. Okay, I okay. Uh, I ran. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I have a listener who uh, happens to have uh, two family members who are very well known within uh, the historical community, um, and they're in Great Britain of all places. Uh, one of them is uh, his name is Professor John D. Charmley. Okay, John John D. Charmley, and he teaches at the University of East Anglia. And uh, John Charmley was the head of the School of History from 2002 to 2012 at the University of East Anglia. And here's what he says regarding your claims. He says they are fabulists. Uh, that you know that you and uh, you and others are fabulous. And then Dr. Gerald T. J. Charmley. Here's what he says about your theory. He says it's pob- positively deranged okay and uh basically saying that you know your your theories do not hold up under true historical academic scrutiny and the evidence that you put forward (laughs) isn't evidence at all well you know the see the problem with this approach and I, i would i would bet they haven't read the book i mean they certainly don't produce any kind of analysis here um it's really just ad hominem you know kind of kind of silliness um, the, the problem here, here's the problem, Chris, is that I produce evidence that is so simple. You see, um, I'm just saying that, you know, Jesus yeah, was, it, it's simple, but it requires you to chuck all other evidence. Yeah. But, but you see the other evidence pretty much is balloon gas. I mean, the evidence of like the Talmud and stuff. I mean, that, that, that goes in the category, like I was like, like in my opinion, of just, you know, many Superman comics indicating that the character was real. And Cornelius Tacitus, that's balloon gas yeah, as well. Yeah, no, the Tacitus one is very good. I think that's very good evidence. It's your best one. Um, it, uh, you know, it, it. I don't think it's, it's correct. I think that if you actually, you know, think about it, you'll see that there is, uh, if if my evidence is is correct, if, if you actually read Caesar Messiah and you say, okay, well, this is right, then you would look at the Tacitus piece and just go, you know, some later Christian guy interpolated this, 
to try to create some historical context for Jesus because – But there's no evidence to show that. There's no evidence to show that. Let me finish. Because there was a problem with the character in that there's no historical evidence of him. You see, that was why there was a a need to come up with these kinds of materials because – there just isn't any, you know, really good history of this guy in, in Judea. And um, there's lots of people who've done analysis of the literature there, and they're puzzled that at the time, no one, you know, who should have been writing about this guy was actually writing about Jesus Christ. So, yeah. um, and, and- but, but in any case, just to go back to what I was saying, you know, when, when you understand prefiguration, you know, it takes a little while to kind of get the genre. And then you look at the relationship between uh, Jesus and Titus. Um, I think it's just an obvious understanding that uh, he is prefiguring um, the Son of Man that he's he's predicting. Now, well, as, well if that's first, the case, if this is a Roman creation, why were Christians persecuted officially by the Roman government? Wouldn't it have been? Hey, basically, the Roman government's position should, towards Christians should have been: Well, we don't care if they worship Caesar or not; they're already doing it. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Know what I mean? I got what, what. What persecutions are you referring to? I, well, well yeah, we could talk about the persecution under Domitian. We could talk about you know later persecutions, basically in the first three centuries. There were sporadic yeah, well, I, periods I would, of persecution, yeah, and, I would the, say, and the Roman government basically had problems with the Christians because they refused to say Kaiser Estin Curias that Caesar right. is Lord. They refused to do it. Where if this was an invention of the Flavians, don't you think that the joke would have been passed down so that everyone knows, oh yeah, listen, those those uh, those Jesus guys, they say they won't worship Caesar, but what they're really doing is actually worshiping Caesar already. They just don't even know it. So just leave yeah, it alone. Right. It, it's um, uh, I think that virtually all of the uh, persecution of Christians that's um, represented up to the beginning of the third century um, are uh, Messianic zealots. Um, the The good way to actually know that is to look at the typology showing that the Apostle Simon in the Gospels is actually the uh, Simon that, that was the head of the Messianic movement that uh, Josephus recorded, who was taken to Rome. He fulfilled the prophecy that's given for Simon in John 21. Um, and you can see that what Rome has done is they've simply extrapolated and, and stolen the history of the real Messianic movement, have attached it on to their new version, and are tra- hoping that over time the history will become blurred and people will just kind of lose, lose a contact with these old uh, ideas. Um, don't, from- you, don't you think it's a lot easier to say this, okay? Yeah. That, you know, in between 30 and 33 AD, there was this Jewish guy named Jesus, okay? And that he had 12 disciples that he taught, that he performed miracles, at least they claimed that he performed miracles, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, and they claimed to have saw him alive after he was crucified. And like the uh, the documents say, they went and told the world uh, uh, the good news about Jesus Christ. They planted churches, as, you know, as the history in Acts tells us, that Paul was a real person, Peter was a real person, Jesus was a real person, and that Paul himself was a person of Christians and that uh, you know this is this is a lot easier to uh, to get and then you look at you know Pliny the Younger you look at Cornelius Tassus you look at the Talmud uh, you know evidence out there that they're all non-Christian and they're all hostile witnesses that affirm yeah. that, that, that this is what was going it's, on and that the reason why the, and the reason why and the reason why again hold on and the reason yeah. why 
Nero pinned the fire on Rome on the Christians who believed in Christus, who was killed under Pontius Pilate, is because already in 64 AD there were Christians in Rome who believed in Christus who was crucified under Pontius Pilate. I mean, it seems pretty straightforward to me, and I don't have to actually, you know, come up with some outlandish explanation. You know, maybe like Elvis came, you know, it was beamed down by the mothership and came down and changed the the uh, the histories of Rome written by Cornelius Tacitus. This this is ridiculous. No. Actually, um, a, a, a careful reading of the Gospels um, in association with the Wars of the Jews will show you, I think, um, and, and uh, it uh, essentially does have uh, this power because I do get the emails from people who read it. Um, it'll show you that the character was a typologic creation. Um, he has prefiguration looking backwards to the Old Testament and also forward to the, uh, the Son of Man um, who he predicts is going to come during the Jewish war. Um, now, which kind of leads to the question, who is so, copying whom? Let's, uh, let's, I, you know, let's, yeah. If I just grant the premise that there's some typological parallel going on, yeah. based upon the evidence and, and the timeline and the fact that Christians existed prior to the Flavian emperors, if there was a typological parallels being drawn, uh, the question is who's copying whom? If there's a real typological parallel going on, it would seem like it was being done on the part of Josephus, who was copying the the uh, the, the life of Jesus from the Gospels and right. not the other way around. Right. That's often argued is that, uh, that, G- that Josephus has put these... Uh, you know, these elements in as a kind of way of mocking the Gospels. Um, and, well, they, and the thing is, is because Christians existed prior to the Flavian emperors, on the timeline, they're there first. Well, the, ti- the Christians who existed were, were Messianic zealots. I think for the Roman... Again, Mar- what evidence do you have for such a claim? Well, it's, it's because, the other way I mean, the, Because, uh, like, the Tacitus quote makes it clear that these are followers of the guy who was killed by Pontius Pilate. Hold on, buddy. Look... We know the messianic uh, zealot Christians existed, right? We, there's no question about that. We have the Dead Sea Scroll literature. We have the war. We've got uh, very good information it's about that. It's a different religion altogether. Right. Uh, it was a different religion. They didn't worship the crucified guy. They didn't worship the crucified guy. What we don't have is any evidence of this other form of Christianity. Now, you have your... Your, your statement from Tacitus, which I think is very suspicious and, in fact, uh, was an interpolation. But no, that, that, you thing. just assert, you just allege that it's well, interpolation without well, actually I, providing I, evidence I, to show that I, it is. Chris, Chris, back, back up. Um, you don't have anything else, you see. If you had, Actually, I have the eyewitness testimony of the Gospels no, themselves no, no, no. that put, no, the, that no, put no, Jesus that, in, the, in Judea in the early yeah. part of the first century. Read Bauckham's book. Now, once you see, here's the problem there. Once you um, are able to um, uh, actually decode the typology, the, the Gospels um, do not any longer have kind of the historical evidentiary uh, stature. Um, what you've got are essentially more type scenes than, uh, than history, very few history scenes really at all. And so... What you're left with is the Tacitus bit, which is suspicious. And on the other side of the equation, you have a, a Messianic movement that is absolutely real and vivid, that has literature, that has accomplishments, that is, you know, understood and known. And their literature and, and accomplishments are completely different from Christianity. 
Yeah, they totally didn't, They didn't call themselves Christians. Well, we don't know that. What What did well, they call themselves? Well, it, unfortunately, Rome destroyed their literature. All we have is a few scraps, so we're not sure. They have the... They have a different. They actually have a number of different um, uh, descriptions of themselves in their um, uh, in the literature, but we don't really know what we are. What we know about them is that. So what we're going to do is we're going to take the documents that we do have, where we do know something, and we're going to throw those away, and we're going to basically hypothesize based upon evidence we don't have. No, no, we don't throw them away. The whole point is the gospels can be shown. In other words, you see what your mind is. Um, uh, I understand how it's structured, and I understand your belief in history. What I'm saying is the relationship between Jesus's ministry, his adult ministry, and uh, Titus's campaign, it cannot be artificial. Uh, I mean, it, it could not have been created accidentally. It is artificial. So this brings into question the entire historicity of the character, Jesus Christ. Now, No, no actually well, it doesn't that, because, that, because that, the, right. the Christianity predates Josephus by yeah, three decades. That, that's, your, um, uh, that's your hope, buddy, but I'm afraid that you just don't have enough to really uh, make that work. You, all you have is the Tacitus claim from the 11th century. Which no, even actually, the word, which I don't. Even, I have more than that. I have the I have the Book of Acts again. You oh. you should really read. You should really read F. F. Bruce's The New Testament documents. Are they reliable? I mean, this 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 is a it's a it's a mid first century document. It, it tells a history. I'm not making my logic clear. Um, you don't have any idea when Acts or the Pauline letters were written. We don't know that. Actually, we, just... we do. Actually, oh, we do. First Corinthians is written 52 A.D. 52. And why, why, do, you, do you have? Do you have? Who is? Who tells you that? Paul or, or uh, Luke? We know this again. Even skeptical scholars put Jesus's Pauline letters in the 50s, which kind of leads well, to this question. Let, no, no, let me no, ask no. you this question. Let me ask oh, you this question. Let me, let me, let me ask you this question. Let me make this point clear. Um, we know that the Jesus character was created after the war because many events in the war are integral into his ministry. So in other words, actually the story of Jesus in the eyewitness testimony predates the war by decades. Well, we know that's your opinion, but the fact no, it is— No, it's, it's, it's based upon eyewitness evidence. It's also based upon hostile Chris, evidence. Hold, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. So are you saying that that uh, when the uh, authors uh, are, are claiming that in, uh, in 33 that uh, Jesus is predicting the events from the war, that, uh, that you, were ta- you, were, you were using this as your historical evidence? Yeah, it's based upon eyewitness testimony. Well, but it's eyewitnesses of prophecies, buddy. It's no, not. It's eyewitnesses of the life and teaching of Jesus no, Christ. No, it's eyewitnesses of prophecies. It's not. It's not a piece of history. This is a a spiritual um, declaration. It isn't. It isn't really pretending to be history. It's well. I mean, it is pretending to be history, but it's. It is describing um, a mirac- a miracle, whereby he, this guy is looking into the future now. You can argue that okay, it's it's a miracle. You know, that's just what it was. But that's not a, a position that I really can, you know, respond rationally to. If you want to take that sure position, sure you can. Well, sure you can. There's no reason for you to a priori say that uh, a miracle is contrary to reason. That doesn't make any sense. That's a circular argument. 
I've just not seen many of them a priori. And by the way, Luke himself makes it very clear he set out to write a history. Here's what he says. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria, and all that went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. See, again, the New Testaments, the New Testament Gospels, they claim claim to be history. They set yeah, up everything in history hold on, hold on, and they claim to be a, eyewitness yeah, testimony. Chris, it's a, it's a fiction, buddy. Look, based on what are you saying? It's a fiction based because, because you well, cracked a code. Let me, let me explain. Um, because um, he's registering for the tax and he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Why is he going to Bethlehem to be born? It's because the authors are setting him up as a son of David Messiah, right? No, because the prophecies of the Old Testament say that the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. Okay, right. You see, this is where we kind of like lose the thread of the of the of the of the conversation because I know that you believe that. I just am sorry, I can't really connect rationally to it because you're essentially trying to um claim miraculous events like Jesus' ability to see the war in the future and yes, his fulfilling absolutely. the Old Testament prophecy. Yeah. Yeah. That, that you're saying that this is the basis, this story is therefore the basis of the belief in historicity. Well, um, this is, to me, it's, it's, uh, it's not um, uh, a coherent, uh, not a, uh, you know, it's not, it's not empirical uh, because of the, of the problem with um, uh, the fact that these are uh, supernatural events, and it's a lot easier to again you know, to you're say, a, a priori saying that, that supernatural events are contrary. No, it's just, just making it up. No, actually, it's, it's not. It's not because you well, have why? to explain why, why, why are these no. guys willing to go to their deaths proclaiming that they saw Jesus dead, and then three days later that he saw him, they saw him physically alive. That yeah, this is know, based upon eyewitness testimony. The, the, you, you have. Um, the claim that it's eyewitness, but then you have the eyewitnesses recording supernatural events. Of course, um, because would, the claim would, is is that Jesus claimed to be none other than the God who created the universe in six days by okay. speaking it into well, existence. I, I, I he claims to be that God in human flesh. Okay, he doesn't Chris, actually claim to be a Roman Chris, Roman okay, deity. He claims just, to be just, Yahweh just, of the Old Testament in human flesh. I, I hear, you, I hear. You. But but flip for a second. Just look at it from my point of view. I don't see miracles as having the possibility of being historical. So when I look at the literature... Again, you're a priori ruling them well, out. Based upon what? Well, because they don't exist in reality. How do you know they don't exist in because reality? Because I, uh, I will, I will I'll tell you what. If you can come here and perform some, um, like, for example, if you can fix the, this incredible plumbing problem I'm having that no one seems to be able to deal with, then maybe I'll, I'll, I'll be willing to, to, to flip over. But... Yeah, and Jesus said it's, it's a wicked and adulterous generation so. that looks for a sign. But the sign he gave okay. you was the resurrection of his physical body okay. after okay. he was oh. crucified under Pontius Pilate. I, I hear what you're saying. Um, it's it's just that isn't um, that is faith, and that's really not an area I, I can I can really you know respond to. But yet you oh, are making me, a, you are making you a, a faith statement, a faith statement that miracles are not possible. That is not a yeah. rational statement. That is a faith statement, not based on any evidence. It's just well, based upon something well, okay, conjecture that okay, you put let, out let, there. Let this way, I haven't seen any miracles. Neither have I. Okay, well then I will take the position that they don't exist because I haven't seen them. There's a lot of things that you believe in that you haven't seen. I know, but there's a lot of things that uh, I haven't seen that don't exist. So um, 
Uh, I'll just take that position, and, and I'm comfortable with it. And, and I think. Do you believe in protons and neutrons and and <laughs> and the nuclei of uh, atoms? Do you believe in those? Um, protons. Yeah, absolutely. Um, have you seen any? I I have um, actually have, not seen protons. I have. Well, I mean, pro- sir, I mean, it doesn't seem rational to believe in yeah, something but, you haven't but, seen. But the, uh, the, the 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 that's based on. Uh, you know, mathematical calculations that uh, I can follow, and I actually uh-huh. kind of curious about physics, so I, I do look at those things. And yeah, did you um, did you see the assassination of Abraham Lincoln? I missed that, though. I'm probably close to the age where I could have. Yeah, I <laughs> yeah I know. Isn't it? Isn't getting old fun? <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> kidding. Um, yeah, but, but uh, aside from no, the fact I, that you didn't, I, Chris, but, I totally, I totally get it. I totally see where you're coming from. It isn't for me. I can't. I cannot. Okay. I just, so, okay. I, I, good. I would, I would love to now, be able to now, try to engage you in this level, but I just can't. I mean, but, but can see, I just tell you, like, let's just make something clear. Let's just make something clear. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, that. It's not that you have evidence that miracles can't happen. It's you said it's not for you. Basically, what we're hearing, what I'm hearing from you, is that I don't care what evidence that you're going to bring. I'm going to suppress it. I've made up my mind. Jesus is not who he claimed to be. Miracles are not possible. Um, I don't care what evidence you show me to the contrary. No, no, you're, you're uh, Jesus to, you're didn't. Jesus me, didn't exist prior. More, that he's Chris, just you're a fictional to make character. More feasible than I already am. Um, no, I, I'm really just saying – I'm not saying they can exist. I'm saying because I haven't seen them and because so often um, they are um, they are not uh, what they claim to be. Uh, in fact, every single time that I'm able to make a determination, um, I'm just going to go with the idea that um, the uh, historical or the, uh, the, the records of miracles um, are, are fake. And they are essentially written for – political purposes. And I just wanted to make one little quote or comment. You know, you talk about the, that, that the, how the, the census of Quirinius was the basis for the birth date of Jesus, you know, um, that's a political date because that's, that essentially yeah, shows and it, that and it anchors the, it in history. Well, what, yeah, but what it does is it shows that the, uh, the family of the Messiah is willing to pay taxes. And this is a position that Rome wanted to present as part of the Jewish religion. And so that's how I look at that statement. You look at it differently. I, I think I, the Romans were very persuasive in convincing people that they ought to pay their taxes. I, I, I don't, Brother, I disagree. I think if you look at the, um, at the carnage of the War of Kittus, where uh, they are wiping out a quarter million Gentiles on the island of Cyprus, um, I would say they weren't too persuasive. So I think you want to study the, that, that history a little bit. But... Um, uh, but I would also point out that the death of Jesus is also a political date because, you know, he, he um, Jesus uh, claims to be the, or the authors make him to be the, um, the Passover of the new covenant. And the old covenant had a 40 year cycle, you know, where there was a wandering in the wilderness before they could essentially gain ownership of, uh, of Israel. Um, well, you know, the, the, uh, the date of Jesus's death, you know, which is if you if you just take the Gospels and you have the 15th year of Tiberius, I believe it is. And then three Passovers, you know, that, that equals 33 Passover 33. Well, Masada falls exactly 40 years later. So you can see that the that the new covenant typology was a political one because it links directly to the Flavian military victory in Judea It actually the perfect 40 years. I mean, it's to the day, you know, Passover uh, 73, Passover 33. 
you can see like just like the um, the census of Quirinius, it's a, there's a political basis in back of it. You know, they're they're trying to shape the um, uh, the new covenant to uh, essentially have Rome now um, be uh, the, the you know where where the messianic prophecies are directed toward, uh, and then of course that's that's why um, uh, Josephus and Tacitus and Dio they all said the same thing about the Flavian Caesars. They said, hey, these guys are the Christ. They are the individuals that the messianic prophecies foresaw, which which is completely parallel to what Jesus says. Jesus says the Son of Man's going to come. Gives the date. Uh, Josephus, De- Tacitus, Dio says, you know, the Flavian Caesar is the Christ. Um, on uh, Passover 73, they gain control over the, um, uh, the land of, uh, of Israel. They are now essentially the new chosen people. And you've got this perfect political alignment, um, arithmetically, you know, that, that uh, sure strikes me as being an indication that uh, the uh, literature is coming from someone who would benefit from that perspective. Well, again, you know, th- this is your theory and your hypothesis. Right. Well, those are, those dates aren't theory. I mean, you know, you do with your interpretation. Basic. Yeah, I see it as the logical fallacy, post hoc ergo propter hoc. You know, after this, therefore, because of this, it, it just you know, you, yeah, you no. haven't really put any documentary evidence forward that actually says that this is you know that you know, they invented Jesus, and you've got all of this this other. A documentary evidence that shows the existence of Christians who believed in the guy who was killed under Pontius Pilate existing prior to the Flavian Empire. That just completely obliterates your uh, your theory. Let me ask you this question, quick question. Yeah. Um, you know, in your uh, in your press release, it says biblical scholars will be appearing at the Covert Messiah Conference at Conway Hall in London on the 19th of October. Conway Hall, by the way, a friend of mine pointed out, is kind of like you know the skeptical society's. Uh, you know, venue. Yeah, it has a, it has a really yeah uh, checkered past. I'll tell you that. Yeah, it, it does. But you know, which I think find fascinating. But um, you know, you were put forward in this press release as as a biblical scholar. Um, who recognizes you as a biblical scholar, and uh, you know, where did you get your uh, your credentials I, yeah, to I be a biblical to, scholar? I would. I actually. Um, I am called a biblical scholar. Um, by people who read the book, I actually would say what I am is a. Uh, prefiguration typologist specialist. Um, okay, so you're, you know, you're you're like the leading guy in prefiguration typology. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I actually I wrote the book. Um, so so since um, this genre has been overlooked, unfortunately, it's just absolutely amazing. I, I just wanted to, you know, to show how incredible uh, New Testament scholarship has been asleep at the switch. Um, you see, all of the parallels that I show have not been noticed before, right? I actually had to discover these things. Well, I've actually that, read a scholarly treatment of that somebody prior to you has actually tried to show that there's some kind of parallels between the uh, Josephus's telling of the campaign of Titus and the Gospels. But that you know, they they who, they, who is, I, who for, is that? I I forget the guy's name. I it wish was, I could see it. Yeah. You know, no, it, I well well whether or not you know it doesn't actually there what oh, no, hold back up. Cliff Carrington and Professor Rod Blackhurst were actually developing um, a Flavian theory of, of Christianity at the same time I was. We weren't in contact. I, I self-published Caesar's Messiah, I think around 2000 or something, and, um, and I was contacted by these guys in Australia, these scholars, and they were essentially working on the same thesis. 
they hadn't discovered that the parallels were all built into a system, but they had actually discovered uh, many of the parallels that I had. And in fact, the three crucified, one survived, was one of them. Um, and um, it's a shame, actually, in a way that they hadn't gone on and just developed it further because then I wouldn't have to uh, <laughs> spend my life, um, you know, dealing with this stuff. Um, but the fact is that if you look at this now, and I just want you, I just want to ask you an honest question. Now, sure. it says, I saw many captives crucified and remembered three of them as my former acquaintance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm very sorry, my mind. And I went with tears in my eyes to Titus. And my name is Joseph. And I told him about this. So he commanded them to be taken down and have the greatest care of them in order for their recovery. Yet two of them died under the physician's hands while the third recovered. Now, you know, we can, you know, argue this, I suppose, endlessly, but it's just unconscionable that uh, Christian scholarship um, would not have recognized that there was odd parallelism between this passage and the one in the, in the uh, uh, in, you know, in the Gospels. But there really isn't a parallelism. The reason why is because the two guys that Jesus was crucified between, they both died. Uh, they yep. ended up having their legs broken. They were not, you know, medically treated at all. Right, two of them and, died. And Jesus himself died prior to both of them and well, uh, he, had a Roman spear thrust into yeah, his side. Yeah, but, but he recovered. Uh, yeah, and the reason why he recovered is because he rose again bodily from the grave after he'd been killed. Know, brother, but I'm just saying, if I put this passage, right, among a hundred random passages that you took out of Josephus and you laid the gospel story of the crucifixion out— don't you think that everyone would pick this passage as the one that was parallel to the crucifixion? No, because when I read the Josephus passage, oh, I'm, I, I'm reading history. I, no, I, I'm sorry, I, brother. Uh, well, that's what I'm saying. In other words, if you took Josephus passages, yeah. just take 100 random passages, yeah, and then threw this one in, everyone would, and this and I have done these tests, so I'm not blowing smoke here. Every, this is like a 100 percenter. I've never had anybody who would actually take the test and like look through like 50 passages and pick one that was close to the crucifixion. It didn't come up with this one. This one is a hundred percenter. And yet it had never been noticed by scholarship. It's just, again, what I see is that the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are writing history and they tell us about Jesus's crucifixion. Uh, Josephus writing in Rome and, you know, yeah. you know, in the nineties, yeah. he's writing history, telling his story and uh, you, you know what he's doing? He's telling history. It just so happens we've got two historical events with, you know, some similar numbers, but you know, that involve crucifixion. But there's well, really there's no is, parallel. The parallel hold, breaks hold, down when you look at the on, details. Hold on, hold on. I'm sorry. Um, y- y- crucifixion is a death sentence, and so when you have uh, one guy recovering, it's a parallel. In other words, we can argue about it, but I'm just telling you, if you if you do if you do the test. This this passage has statistical power. How so? Be, How so? It, well, let me the explain. details don't even lock up. No, you. They, if that was the case, then it wouldn't be picked as a parallel by one hundred percent of people who are. Because you see, what see what you're up against here, and this this is really a problem for Christianity. Because I know that. Uh, you know, you're well defending it uh, against me, and uh, I'm, well, I'm very much Well, considering the fact that Christians were blamed for the fire in Rome in 64 A.D. You have the you have the peace in Tacitus, but but I'm telling you, the problem is that um, when you get into sequence, um, you you start getting into probability, and the the just like with DNA evidence, and 
you don't want to see this as um, a parallel to the crucifixion story, but that can be demonstrated through math because, as I said, you take you, you create a, a matrix of randomness. This this passage will get pulled out. I mean, and and I and I honestly think that you're being kind of uh, stubborn here because most people just immediately will when I show it to them they go, oh, yeah, that's that's Again, similar. Even that's if similar. I grant, even <laughs> if I grant parallel. that it's a parallel, Christianity oh, yeah, and Christ's well, crucifixion it, it, predates that. So who's but, copying but, who? Tacitus? Uh, you, you you got Josephus okay, copying got, the, got, the disciples. We got Tacitus. But you see, the problem is, is that there are too many of these within um, the uh, Titus and Jesus' camp ministries. When you get too many of them, you start getting into um, uh, a kind of statistical uh, certainty. Because okay, again, if I grant your premise, okay, yeah. and say, okay, listen, all right, sure, okay, statistically, you got a rock solid case. We got clear parallels here. Somebody's copying the other, okay. Right. No, no doubt about it. Because the story of Christianity and the spread of Christianity and the fact that they worshipped the guy who was crucified under Pontius Pilate predates Josephus and his work, it's clear then that the copying is taking place on the part of Josephus. He's purposely emulating the Gospels. It's interesting. You know, that's an interesting idea. I actually toyed with that and tried to make it work. I, I can't quite make it work, but I think it's it certainly is plausible. And 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 actually... What they would have had to have done is they, they would only have needed to have put in the Son of Man and then tweaked a few of these things like this passage in order to create the typology. But it is a problem in that you're having uh, the Caesars reach pretty deep into the Christian literature. But it, it's not – I couldn't really – Yeah, but uh, you've already demonstrated in your book that there's a motive for that because they're trying to uh, – you, know, uh, you know, with a case of uh, – of uh, Vespasian, you know, he's he's he has these delusions of deity, and you've already demonstrated there's a there's a willingness on the part yeah, of Josephus. You know, I can't I can't I can't argue there. Um, I would say that that's actually you know I, I mean I mean in all honesty, <clears throat> to try to disprove that would be a pain in the ass, and I'm not sure I could even if I wanted to spend time on it. Um, okay, well, listen, uh, uh, yeah. Joseph, uh, yes, sir. we are approaching two hours of oh, time. Oh, man, uh, it's gotten but, fast. You know, and it, Chris, I just want to tell you, God, what a pleasure. And, you know, I really think you're a wonderful scholar. Uh, your understanding of material is just spectacular, and it's just been a pleasure to talk with you. I, I hope we can do it again, and I hope I wasn't boring to you. I hope that no, it this, was it was a great conversation, and, yeah. and and you know, and since you came on my program, you know, I, I, I want to be a gracious host and thank you for your time and for the spirited conversation, yeah, and for you, keeping Chris. it on the evidence. But l- let me tell you this, okay? Let me tell yeah. you this because as a Christian, it would be wrong for me not to tell you this, and yeah. that is is that the Jesus who you think is fabricated is actually historical and real. And he is the God of the Jews and human flesh. And I got news for you. He died for your sins. And you're suppressing the truth here. And your evidence actually doesn't stand up to scrutiny. And my concern is, is that you go to your grave believing your theory when the truth is so much better than what you're putting out there and what you're trying to debunk. And that is, is that Jesus Christ is God. He is Lord. He did die under Pontius Pilate. He did bodily rise from the grave. He did walk on the water and he died for your sins. And he would tell you, and I would, ha- and, and I would speak, you know, because as a Christian, I'm given this message to speak. 
speak to you. And that is repent, stop suppressing the truth and believe this good news because Jesus is for real. He's not some invention of the Flavians. He's actually the bona fide for real God in human flesh who suffered and died for you. Well, you know, um, I, 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 first of all, thank you. I thought that was actually a kind of blessing that you gave me and I do appreciate it. Um, you know, I'm not an atheist. I, um, uh, I'm someone who does literary analysis and, um, the, um, uh, the relationship between, um, um, uh, Jesus's ministry and, uh, Titus's campaign, I think will, uh, create a lot of, um, uh, of interest, you know, in, in, in the history of the era. And I hope if nothing else, it'll, um, provide like more people with a deeper understanding of the first century because that was such a critical pivotal point in our culture. And, um, uh, I just, uh, you know, one thing about, uh, Christians is frankly, uh, uh, you know, I love living with them. And, um, I think, uh, uh, that, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. All right. Well, thank you for your time and, you, and I, and I will be praying for you. <laughs> Me too. All right. Thanks, Chris. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>